And uh, for the rest of us, let's open in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. And while you're turning there, I want to read an excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's illustration of the Christian life. It says this, Now I saw in my dream... The path that Christian walked was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. On this path, Christian ran, but not without great difficulty because of the burden on his back. He ran until he came to a hill. Atop that hill stood a cross, and below was an empty tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders. It fell from his back and it began to tumble and it continued to roll until it fell into the mouth of the tomb. And I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and relieved. And he said, He has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Bunyan illustrates here what every Christian experiences when they respond to the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 11:28. Let's read these words. Matthew 11:28, Jesus says, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. The joy, the relief that Christian experienced when he was at the bottom of that hill, his burden loosed from his shoulders, falling into the empty tomb, is what you will experience when you respond to the king's invitation in this passage. Matthew 11, 28. And Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor. And are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So let me ask you today we've been singing about this, but have you come today feeling burdened, feeling troubled, guilty, heavy hearted, maybe feeling shame because of sin or trouble in your life? This invitation is for you this morning. Have you been searching, working, striving, seeking, struggling at all costs to find relief, but you're unable? This invitation is for you this morning. Christian, this invitation is for us too. Coming to Jesus Christ is not a one and done deal. Have you forgotten? Have you neglected? Have you been distracted? Have you wandered from the precious promise of Jesus Christ for you in this passage? Perhaps you've gone back to the old way. Laboring, striving, working really hard to find rest when you've forgotten that the place of rest is at the feet of Jesus. This invitation is for you this morning. Will you come today and find rest for your soul? Come today. Now these words are only recorded by Matthew. 
Only Matthew's gospel has them. And remember Matthew's aim. Just some context. Matthew's aim is to prove that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the King. We've seen Jesus is in the royal bloodline. He fulfills a prophecy in the Old Testament. He teaches with an authority even greater than the scribes. He possesses all power over sickness, over storms, over satanic forces, over sin, and even power over death. He is the Almighty King. And in fact, if you remember in verse 27, if you just look up, Jesus declares, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. He has, you could say, the royal credentials and the authority to sign and send this invitation in Matthew eleven twenty-eight out on behalf of the triune God. So this isn't just any invitation to any celebration or any place. This is the king's invitation. The king's invitation. And there's three commands from verses 28 to 30 for us to receive this invitation. And we're only going to look at one of them this morning. Uh, J.C. Ryle calls this passage, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, he calls it, an endless mine shaft filled with countless treasures. And uh, Spurgeon calls it a passage of pearls. And, and for us, I just want to lift up one of the pearls this morning and take a close look at it. Just verse 28. Just verse 28. And just a simple outline to walk through this wonderful verse. I have three points, and, and you'll see it on your outline as you received in the way, on the way in. It is a personal invitation to a broken people with a precious promise. There's the spoiler alert. That's all three of my points. A personal invitation to a broken people with a precious promise. But I want to look at those points more carefully and walk through these words. Before we do that, why don't I pause again and pray and ask the Lord to help us. Heavenly Father, we want to glorify Jesus Christ, Your Son, this morning. I pray that You'd help me to speak Him, and You'd help them to see Him. And that we would respond to this wonderful invitation from Scripture, wherever we're at in life right now that we would receive it and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing Jesus says is, come to me. Come to me. Oh, the command come is a sweet invitation. Come. Come. To me, he says. This isn't like just basic instructions. Like, go here, go there. Do this, do that. Talk to him, talk to her. Jesus says, no, come to me. It's a personal invitation to discipleship. If I were to point at Jimmy here and say, Jimmy, come to me. 
figuratively, Jimmy. What would you expect him to do? Well, exactly what he started to do. You would expect him to get up and to walk towards me. We understand this command. Come. Requires some action and response, doesn't it? It requires a directional change. Now, why do so many Christians or people who call themselves Christians misunderstand what it means to come to Christ? Some people think it's just kind of a decision you make in your head. It's like some kind of enlightening moment. Some people respond to this command and think they have to better themselves. They have to straighten themselves up before they come to Christ. Others respond to this command emotionally, but not volitionally. So they feel guilty about their sins. They, they weep and, and they feel like they have this emotional encounter with God, but there's no action. There's no result. I want you to imagine something. Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, come to me. Imagine one man in the, in the crowd going, aha, I get it now. Jesus, what you said makes all the sense in the world. Thank you for the TED talk. I'll try to catch you on the way back through. And then he leaves. He walks away. What? Imagine Jesus looks out to the crowd and he says, come to me. And then another man goes, all right, Jesus, all right, I get it. Attendance at the synagogue has been sparse lately. All right, I feel guilty about that. I'll do better. Thank you for the encouragement. And he walks away. What? Jesus said, come to me. Think about finally, maybe Jesus says, come to me. And there's a gal sitting there in the crowd and she's weeping. She's crying. And then she starts to pray and she says, Jesus, I know you said come to me, but I actually want you to come to me. I want you to come into my heart. I feel a certain way, and so I want you to come into my heart. And then I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to go now. I'm going to wait for the next God encounter to do this all over again. And then she walks away. Imagine people doing that in the crowd. As Jesus says, come to me, what should we expect from them? To get up and to follow him. We understand, or we should. Understand, Jesus' command here is a personal invitation to discipleship, to follow Him. There's an implied response to this command. And the only proper response is to repent and believe, to get up, to turn from your old way of sin and go to Him in faith, to know Christ personally, to trust Him wholeheartedly, to embrace Him with all of life, to love Him with your whole heart and to confide in Him and then to continue to follow Him with the rest of your life. Come to me is a personal invitation to discipleship, to know Jesus and follow Him. And you know what? I don't think this invitation strikes us the way that it should for two reasons. A, because familiarity breeds contempt. We've heard this a bunch of times, and so we kind of become apathetic towards this command. Secondly, and more sinisterly, I think some of us think we're entitled to it. We think somehow we have earned or we deserve an invitation from the Lord Almighty. 
from the king. We might think to ourselves, well, of course Jesus would invite me to come. He's a nice guy and I'm good company. I've earned this invitation. And I think in that we have forgotten, first, who he, who he is, and then secondly, who we are. He is holy God. And we are wretched sinners. In fact, I think what we should expect is what Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum received in verses 21 to 24. We should expect from God, woe to you, sinner. Woe to you. You are guilty of sin and deserving of Death. We should not expect an invitation from the king, but I think we should expect a court order from heaven. A notice of default, perhaps. You have breached the terms of his righteousness. Perhaps a a certificate of divorce because we've betrayed him personally, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Perhaps a restraining order even because we've opposed him in our pride personally offended him by choosing to live our way instead of his way. What do you expect from God? An invitation or condemnation? We're guilty. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We're not entitled to an invitation from the king. Yet, this should blow our minds. The king of glory stepped down. Walked among us, wretched sinners. Looked out upon the crowd, not with disdain, but with compassion in his eyes. And now stands here, arms wide open, saying, come to me. Oh, what grace and mercy. What grace to receive this invitation from the King of glory. That's how we need to, that's how we need to posture ourselves not expecting, not entitled to this invitation, but blown away by God's mercy and grace to initiate a relationship with us. Undeserving. We are undeserving of this invitation. And so it should strike us differently. I want you to also notice that this is the first command in the invitation. The first thing that you need to do is to come to Christ. Go nowhere else first. Go to nobody else first. Do nothing else first. Come to Christ first. First and foremost. I wonder, what do you do or where do you go when you're in trouble? What's your first reaction when you're caught in sin, perhaps? Do you quickly try to hide it? Perhaps you try to excuse it, brush it under the rug, pretend it didn't happen, or pretend it's not that big of a deal. Is that your first response? Or is your first response to maybe go to a friend, go to a a therapist, or go to counselors, or even your pastors first? Like they're going to fix your problem? Maybe you try and escape it with medication with drugs, or with alcohol? What do you do and where do you go first with your sin, with your trouble? Is it not the Lord Jesus Christ first? Start with Him. 
I want to encourage you counselors, disciplers, shepherds, leaders, teachers, fathers, mothers, parents, spouses. When someone comes to you with their trouble, when they drop their baggage right at your feet, confessing their sin or or talking about this great anxiety that they feel, the great burden they have in life, where do you take them first? I know for a lot of us, and for me, I'm speaking for myself here, we try to quick fix it, don't we? We try to give suggestions. Five steps to turn your life around right now. You need to stop doing that. You need to start doing this. You need to go here, go there, do this, do that. Talk to him, talk to her. We have our five-step to ten-step fix-your-life plan that we're quick to sometimes give people. No, 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 no. First and foremost, first and foremost, take them by the hand and walk to the hill with a cross on top and an empty tomb below. Take them to the well that never runs dry. Feed them the bread that endures to eternal life. Point them to the only way and the only truth. Bring them to the good shepherd who knows his sheep and lays down his life for them. First, speak the name that is above every other name. Show them Jesus Christ. First, take them to the cross. Take them to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul tells the Corinthian church, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's where he goes first with these people. Oh, what a good reminder for us and where we should go first and where we take people first with their trouble and with their sin. So first and foremost, come to Jesus. Come now, come often, come broken. Which leads us to the second point. This is a personal invitation to a broken people. Who's this invitation for? Who's his target audience? Matthew eleven twenty eight. read it again. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Oh man, do you recognize the weight of your sin this morning? Do you recognize that you're, just a, you're a broken person? That you need help? Good, this is for you. This is for you. This is not an invitation for the wise and the understanding of verse 26. It's not for the the self-disciplined and the clever. It's not for those who think they have all their ducks in a row. It's not for those who are pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. Who are working hard to earn their salvation. It's not for those who consider themselves smart enough, strong enough, or good enough to make it. This invitation is for the broken. For the babies, as Jesus calls us in verse 27. Or sorry, verse 25. Little children, spiritual infants. The people who recognize they are helpless, they're weak, they're needy. It's for the spiritually sick. For the, for the poor in spirit, Jesus says. For the humble. It's for those who, who find themselves desperate. Who know they don't have it all together. Who recognizes their sinfulness and their need for a Savior. It's for the ones who find themselves on their knees or with their head down low 
beating their chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what, who this invitation is for. So if you come today feeling the weight of your own sin, feeling the sense of trouble that is all around you, at times feeling burdened because of it, praise God, this is for you. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Look at, I want to look closely at these two words here. First, the word labor. You might have the translation, all who are weary, tired. The idea of struggling and toiling from within. Heavy laden is uh, a being burdened from without. So as this idea of struggling and toiling within, heavy laden is having a burden on the outside placed on your shoulders. So John Bunyan's illustration is perfect. It's a great illustration of the Christian life. We're all walking around with a backpack of burden on our shoulders. We all bear burdens. And there are many burdens in life. Many burdens. Some people more trouble than others. But I'll tell you the burden that is heaviest for every single one of us. The burden that we all bear and we can't get rid of is the burden of sin. It's the heaviest burden you carry. It's like a lead plate on the soul. It keeps you up at night. It nags you throughout the day. Your conscience doesn't let it go. It's like a merciless slave driver. It's always promising. It never delivers. It leaves you feeling guilty, ashamed, angsty, empty, doubtful, restless, King David described it this way in Psalm 32. He said, when he was in sin, he said, My bones wasted away. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. Some of you know this. Your conscience, even right now, is reminding you of the weight of certain unconfessed sin in your life. It is a heavy burden on your shoulders. It's good to recognize that you actually carry that burden. It would be really bad if you didn't. Others suppress the truth. They've seared their conscience. They're living in an alternative reality, pretending like there isn't a God or that you won't be held accountable for that sin. You've been deceived. You're, you're living in Disneyland. Fun fact about Disneyland you know, Walt Disney, when he designed the park, and still to this day, designed it in such a way that once you enter, you're never able to see outside of it. So there's not a tall building in Anaheim outside of Disneyland Park that you're able to visualize and see. Why? Because Walt Disney wanted you to believe that you're walking into an alternative reality. He wanted to suspend your idea of reality and, and, and have you believe that you're actually walking in another world entirely. And he was successful in doing that for many generations. This world seeks to do the same thing with you and your sin, by the way. They're trying to deceive you, to suspend your reality, to make you think that you're, you're living in a world where there is no God. There's no accountability. There's no consequences for the wrong decisions you make. And you know what? You may walk through life feeling that way, feeling like there really is no burden. But I'll tell you what, the Bible says that because of sin we all die. And that after sin comes judgment. 
you will become painfully aware of your burden of sin when you stand before a holy God on Judgment Day. It'll come back. And it'll sink you if you have no Savior. You can't escape this burden. Jesus uses the same kind of language, accusing the Pharisees, the false teachers, those religious elite, of tying up heavy burdens and then placing them on other people's shoulders. You know what's worse than a guilty conscience? A guilty and depressed conscience. Add the weight of legalism or a works-based salvation to an already convicted conscience? Oh, that's overwhelming. It's like, hey, walk with this heavy burden on your back through life. Now get on a treadmill and run. And you'll always be running, but you're never going to get anywhere. That's works-based religion. It is not a solution to our problem. It doesn't deal with the burden. It doesn't deal with the crushing weight. We can't get rid of it on our own by doing more good works. We can't adhere to external religion and get rid of it or or simply modify our behavior and get rid of the burden. We need to take our burden somewhere else for relief. Jesus tells us where in this passage. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And what's his promise? I will give you rest. Come to me, I will give you rest. So thirdly in your outline, the precious promise. We have a personal invitation to a broken people with a precious promise. I will give you rest. Another translation puts it this way. I will rejuvenate you. I will refresh you. It has this active sense to it. Where God doesn't just freshen us up and then send us on our way, but He actively refreshes us, restores us, rejuvenates our soul. Let me just assure you, there's nothing of greater value in all of life than this. No money can buy it. No amount of searching on your own can find it. No working can earn it. No relationship compares to it. Come to Christ in repentance and faith, and He grants you rest, something the world can't give you. And notice that it's not rest for your body. It's not rest for the aches and pains that you experience physically. It's rest for your soul, which is far more valuable. Coming to Jesus, we know, doesn't always save you from outside trouble. It's not an easy believism kind of thing where you come to Christ and your life gets better or a prosperity gospel. You come to Jesus and you get richer. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not the kind of rest that he promises. In fact, he promises persecution for those who follow him, trouble in the world. He doesn't promise you freedom from physical hardship, handicap, sickness, or even death. The external shell of a man or a woman, it will decay and it will die. That's the reality. But the soul, see, the inner man, who you really are, that can be refreshed and rejuvenated when you come to Christ. That's what you really want. That's what you want above everything else. What does a refreshed soul look like? What are you talking about? My soul can be refreshed. Let's walk through a couple of these points, these benefits of a refreshed soul. So what does a refreshed soul look like? First of all, a clean conscience. 
A clean conscience. Your conscience can be clear. No more hiding. No more excuses. No more saying one thing, but knowing another thing. You can be clear, washed, sprinkled clean by the pure blood of Jesus Christ. You're forgiven of your sins, declared righteous, and they're removed as far as the east is from the west. There's no condemnation for you, Christian. How about that for your conscience? When somebody accuses you, or even the enemy tries to you know, deceive you into thinking that you're still guilty, Jesus Christ says, there's no condemnation for you in me. You've confessed your sins. There's nothing else to hide. You can have a clear conscience. And oh, man, let me tell you what a clear conscience can do for your soul. You can have assurance. What does it look like for your soul to be refreshed? You can have assurance. You're no more questioning. No more doubting. No more uncertainty about the future. But as John says, you can know that you have eternal life. You can be assured of your salvation when you're close to Christ. Peace. You can have an inner peace with God and others that surpasses all understanding. The world might be at war, but your soul is at peace with God and with others. Oh friend, you can have joy. Joy in the presence of In His presence there is fullness of joy, Psalm 16. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy, Psalm 63. Oh, it's a joy unending. It's a joy unspeakable. It's a joy that goes deeper than your smile. It's far greater and richer than just the happy circumstances in your life. You could have a joy that never fades away. Oh, you can have hope. A living hope, 1 Peter says. An eternal hope. A sure hope, Titus 1-2, because the one who promises never fails. You can be satisfied. In His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, Psalm 63. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The world promises you satisfaction. It can't deliver. God can. Your soul can finally be at rest, satisfied in God and in God alone, when you come to Christ. And these are just a few. There's probably more that you can think of that you can find biblically. But do you want to have the rest in your soul that God provides? You know where to go. This is only a promise that He can deliver. And these are things that you can have in your soul despite the circumstances in your life despite how bad everything and everybody is around you. You can have these things still in your heart. See, you can, you can fire a Christian. You can let him go. You can take his paycheck. You can disown a Christian, ostracize him from the family. You can mock a Christian, make fun of him. You can beat him. You can even kill a Christian. But you can't touch his soul. Nobody can touch your soul. Except Jesus Christ, and get this, in His touch is relief. Rest. Come to Me, He says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you take Jesus up on that promise today? You might ask, how? How can Jesus Christ give that which can't be found or taken by anybody else? How can Jesus fix the trouble in my life? 
the trouble in my soul? How can he give me a clear conscience? Forgive me of the heavy weight of sin. How how does he deal with my burden? I want to take you to the hill with a cross on top and an empty tomb below. Look to Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life that you and I can't live. He alone is truly righteous. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He willingly suffered crucifixion at the hands of men, even though he was completely innocent. Why? Why did he do that? Not to be a spectacle of human suffering, but to suffer for our sins. To die for our sins. On that cross, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Effectively, He took the burden off our backs and He placed it on His own. And He took that burden to the grave. Because he bore it in full, he paid the penalty in full, and his last breath he said, it is finished, and then he was buried along with your sins and the penalty for them. The righteous one died so that the many may be accounted as righteous. Isaiah 53. But praise God, his death isn't the end of the story. He conquered death. And three days later, he rose from that grave. He is risen. He's risen indeed. The grave's empty, proving to those who believe in him that sin has been paid for, death defeated, our Savior is alive, and we will be resurrected like him one day in glory. We'll be with him forever. Perfect, without sin, without death. This is the good news of the gospel. This is how Jesus can deal with your burden today. This is how he continues to deal with the burdens that we build up on our backs every day. He pays for it in full through his sacrifice on the cross. So are you here today burdened, troubled, guilty, heavy-hearted, ashamed because of sin? Come to Christ. Are you here Feeling like you've been searching, you've been working, striving, seeking, struggling to find relief, but can't find it? Come to Christ. If you haven't come yet, don't delay. Come today. Come to Christ today and find relief, rest for your soul, forgiveness for your sins, and right relationship with Him. You know, the same invitation extends to you at the end of the book. In Revelation chapter 22, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Come, let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come today if you haven't come already. Christian, oh, it's so easy to forget, to neglect, to, you know, come to the hill where Jesus died and was rose, rose again, and then to walk away and And then live like that didn't happen. Or like you don't need that anymore. We shouldn't walk in far proximity away from the hill, but we should walk in close proximity to the hill, always looking and seeing our Savior who died for our sins and who rose again, and then to live our life in close proximity to Him. To always be coming and to never neglect it. Spurgeon writes this, Oh, for the grace to always be coming to Jesus. To be constantly inviting others to do the same. 
It's always free, yet we're always bearing His yoke. And we always have the rest once given, yet always finding more. This is the experience of those who come to Jesus always and for everything. Blessed heritage, and it is ours. This is a promise for you, Christian, to take hold of every day. I'm coming to you, Lord Jesus. I need you today. And I want to experience the rest for my soul that I, that I know only comes from you. As Christian stood looking and weeping, behold, three angels came to him and they greeted him saying, peace be with you. The first said, your sins are forgiven. The second one stripped him of his filthy rags and clothed him with pure garments. And the third put a mark on his forehead, gave him a scroll with a seal to read as he journeyed and then to give at the celestial, celestial gate when he arrived. Then the angels left him. Christian gave three leaps for joy, and he sang, How far did I come burdened with sin? I could not ease the grief that I was in. Until I came here, what a place is this? Here begins my bliss. Here the burden falls from my back. Here the strings that bound it crack. Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be. The man that there was put to shame for me. Come to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we are not worthy to receive such a gracious invitation from the King. How sweet it is to know Jesus Christ. To have relationship with Him. And to be walking closely with Him. We know that if we abide in Christ, if we stay close to Him, that He provides the refreshment that our soul needs every day. Help us to never forget. Help us to never neglect. I pray that You'd also work in the hearts, You'd open the eyes for those in this room who have not yet received that invitation, who have not yet responded in repentance and faith. I pray that they would get up from their chair that they would respond and turn from their sinful way of living and entrust themselves to Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. That they would follow Christ and become a true disciple of Him. Pray that you'd work through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.